This is Living Philosophy with your host, Dr. Todd May. And for this episode, we'll be discussing the philosophy of disability. What does it mean to be capable? It seems like we all have a picture or idea of what it means to be human with emphases on the things we want to do, want to achieve, want to leave as tributes and legacies to others. These kinds of aspirations, while essential to what it means to be human and to live a flourishing life, all have to do with assumptions about our capabilities and capacities, the ability to speak, to hear, to narrate, to imagine, to be bodily present, to be mobile, to be agile, to be recognized as a member of a community. Yet how often do we think about our inability to do things that we normally expect to be integral to a flourishing life? How should we recognize disabilities that prevent or severely limit our capacity to do things? And this presumes we know what counts as a disability in the first place. The history of Western philosophy is often little help in such instances. Aristotle and Seneca notoriously refer to what we call disabled people in terms of being monsters. That is, in some way, an aberration of what it is to be natural. And philosophy as a discipline tends to conceive of what it means to be human in terms of a fully functioning rational adult. And that's not even to mention other features such as being white and male. So perhaps philosophy can't really help us unless it begins to seriously examine its key assumptions and biases about what it means to be human as well as capable and incapable. Enter the philosophy of disability, which draws on a wide variety of disciplines to make better sense of disability ethically, practically, and politically. Our guest for this episode is Chris Riddle, who is professor of philosophy at Utica University in New York. His areas of specialization include political philosophy, especially theories relating to distributive justice and egalitarianism, and applied ethics. His main area of focus is the philosophy of disability, in which he has several authored and edited books, and for which he has appeared as an expert witness in the state of Delaware in a case entitled The Delaware House Health and Human Development Committee Concerning the Ron Silverio slash Heather Block Delaware End of Life Options Act. Chris also testified in the Connecticut General Assembly Public Health Committee on Senate Bill Number 88 entitled An Act Concerning Aid in Dying for Terminally Ill Patients. Chris, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thanks so much, Todd. Thanks for having me. So the philosophy of disability sounds like a very broad topic, and I imagine there are historical dimensions such as when did people first recognize disability, as well as political, legal, and ontological questions. What counts as a disability? What happens when a person who is medically defined as being disabled refuses to see themselves as such? Is our conception of disability politically informed? And there are a lot more questions. So what do you think is a good starting point for understanding disability? I think the best place to start here, as you ask, is with something that you actually mentioned there. You mentioned Aristotle viewing people with disabilities as monsters, as being abnormal. So I think a good place to start within the philosophy of disability is to talk about how we've viewed disability, how we've conceptualized disability throughout time, and the sorts of accommodations or lack of accommodations that we've provided. So let's start there. And, and I take this to be, like broadly speaking, ontological kinds of questions. So I like to divide, and there's many ways in which we could do this, and I'll probably get criticism as a result of doing this, but I like to divide the ways in which we've thought about disability into five really broad categories. And, and, and as you mentioned, I like to start sort of ancient Greece 
and, and talk about the way that we've conceptualized disability there. And so there we talked about sort of divine disfavor, people who are disabled, particularly children, were often abandoned or, or even killed because disability was viewed, as I said, as, as a divine intervention and, and disfavor. But what was really interesting about that, too, is even as far back as ancient Greece, there's evidence in, in healing places or healing sanctuaries of accommodations being made to allow people, the most obvious are with mobility impairments, the sort of ramps and platforms to allow people with mobility impairments to go to healing sanctuaries. So even though this was viewed as divine disfavor in ancient Greece, there were still some accommodations being made in order to um, attempt to include or even help a lot of people with disabilities. But then I think the next significant shift, which is kind of still in the same family, is in the Middle Ages here, where we're talking about sort of like demonic intervention. And here we're shifting from a big focus on physical disability psychological care. We're seeing people who are identified as being mad, as being having their soul possessed by the devil, demonic sort of influences at play here. So obviously you can see how that went over, not particularly well. People with disabilities were not included, to say the least, and their fate was often similar to those in ancient Greece. But then if we move forward really, really far, we're moving into the Enlightenment. And here is when you know, scientific knowledge sort of takes over. We begin more systemic attempts at some sort of medical system. And we've got what commonly today is referred to as the medical model. Here we're saying, gosh, disability is some individual thing. It's medical. There's a likening of impairment to disability. What we're saying is if one is impaired, one is thereby disabled. And as a result of this, the treatment for this is individual medical interventions to either cure people or to minimize or ameliorate that disability or impairment. Or even, indeed, like we, we can do things to avoid disability altogether from the start through genetic interventions, perhaps testing and interventions in that manner. But then the sort of incomes a much more recent time. Uh, the disability rights movement is not that old, really. But in the 1970s in the UK, uh, the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation is largely thought to be responsible for a shift to what we call the medical model. They formed in 1972, or rather the social model. Sorry, not the, where they're moving away from the medical model into the social model. And here they're making a sharp distinction between impairment and disability. They're saying, no, 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 impairment's not the issue. It's actually the way that impairment manifests itself in society that is the issue. It's not the fact that someone has a mobility impairment. It's the fact that the built environment, that the attitudes present for people in society are the things that disable that. And, you know, uh, you're in the Bay Area. I'm in a smaller town in New York. And this model accounts for a lot of things that I think make sense. Someone with a mobility impairment in the Bay Area experiences that impairment socially as disabling barriers in a much different way than someone in a small town in upstate New York experiences that, right? Like snow removal is a big issue here. Curb cuts, accessible uh, public transportation, attitudes about people when a bus has to stop to kneel to allow someone with a mobility impairment to get into it. And so the social model makes a lot of sense when we consider that identical impairments 
can manifest themselves drastically different ways socially in different geographical regions. And so the social models of tremendous political importance in this way as well and marked a drastic shift and much, much uh, stronger trajectory for disability rights movements. And then finally, the fifth sort of thing is where I think we're at now. And this is something that the World Health Organization's ICF, the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health, embraces. This is something that Tom Shakespeare embraces in his book, Disability Rights and Wrongs. He calls it a multifactorial account. I call it an interactional model. What matters is not impairment solely. What matters is not the way in which society treats individuals solely. What matters is the interaction of these two things. The majority of the experience of disability emerges as a result of social structures and attitudes and things like that. But there is a possibility of residual impairment still impacting an individual's life, even if all the social structures are ideal for an individual. So I think that's a great place to start with, with thinking about how we've conceptualized disability over the time and going from there. I had a question about the way in which social structures work. It seems like the social structures also have a period of transition. So we could provide social structures which accommodate certain impairments. And that's going to have two effects at least. One is on the impaired, how they perceive that provision in relation to their own identity. You may find some people who are impaired who appreciate the gesture, but then are uneasy with it because it isolates them as the impaired person who needs to use that particular structure. And then on the other side, for the people who don't see themselves as being impaired, um, they might see the emergence of that social structure as a bit, for lack of a better term that I can think of on the moment at the moment, awkward, and maybe strikes them as, why is there this provision? And then maybe other questions might follow, for example, who's paying for this? Should I be paying for this? Those kinds of questions that tend to emerge. And then suddenly you, you'll get structures that may initially have been like that, but then just kind of recede into the background and just are accepted as the norm. And I don't really have a view on this. I'm just trying to wonder if you have these kinds of observations, if you come across these, and if they have emerged, do they complicate the picture of what it means to uh, um, provide these social structures, or does it complicate the interaction model you just described? I really like the word that you used there. You said it might isolate. And this is something that we should be conscious of when we're attempting to promote inclusion in any particular way. Like I think in my classroom, when I started teaching, I, like I just, I look back on this now and I think, how did I possibly allow myself to do this? I thought I'm doing the students a favor if I don't allow them to have laptops or technology in the classroom. But if anyone needs one, they can ask me. But then you've got a student in a class with a laptop. You sort of use your language, you're isolating them. And now I just, you know, technology is so prevalent. It doesn't really matter <laughs> at all in many respects. But I think, you know, notions of universal design can go a long way here. I think not all the way, of course, right? But universal design principles help us to not isolate people. So just think about the use of ramps going into a building, right? Like in many respects, the presence of stairs is a really arbitrary choice when ramps could go in there. And it's not just people with mobility impairments that can benefit from ramps. It's delivery drivers. It's people who are moving stuff. It's people with stroller 
thoughtful design decisions don't need to isolate people. I lived in a, a newly built condo in Toronto when I was going to graduate school there. And all the light switches were probably just like a foot and a half lower on the wall. It costs no additional money if it's thoughtfully designed from the start to go to another question of yours. Who bears the cost of this stuff? No additional money. And it took me about three days to get used to it, stumbling around in the dark, searching for the light switch sort of thing. And now all of a sudden, people who might not have been able to reach that light switch all of a sudden can do so and they don't have to be isolated by asking about these accommodations. But there's another thing about that isolation that's interesting. We normalize particular kinds of dependence as being like reasonable. And then we suggest other forms of dependence are pitiable or out of the ordinary. And I think we benefit a lot from all acknowledging that we're all remarkably dependent in many, many ways. And asking for something ought not to be seen as a mark of deficiency. Yet we've arbitrarily decided that some forms of dependency are pitiable and other forms are normal. And I think there's this myth of self-sufficiency that often harms a lot of the discussions that are initiated about disability. This question may be entering a topic I was hoping to address later, but it, since it has to do with ethics, and I'm trying to bring two things together. One is that, as I mentioned in the introductory comments, that the history of Western philosophy tends to just basically conceive of the inquirer or the human agent as a capable human being. And often when I teach ethics class, I'm sure you've had this as well, the questions inevitably arise. So Kant, you know, someone like Immanuel Kant describes the moral agent as this person who can rationalize to a certain capacity in a certain way. And it's a very high standard for, for Kant as well. And then the question is, but what if you're just not up, up to doing that or not capable of doing it? What if you have a slight cognitive impairment? What does that mean? Are you not a moral person for Kant? Or um, if you're severely limited in some kind of cognitive capacity, does that mean you don't count as a as a person for Kant or have personhood? And so there is this way in which you have to start thinking about, well, how do we reconceive something like ethics from the point of view of, uh, of a human who doesn't have these kinds of capacities we assume that all humans should have, or to put it as you as you put it quite well, what if we can see what if we conceived of ethics as from a point of view of dependency? And I think you're probably aware of this. It's Martha Nissbaum's big criticism of Kant and his notion of autonomy, or I guess you could say self-sufficiency here. And I'm I'm very sympathetic to that view because particularly in the American context, I think self-sufficiency is really overdetermined or or overestimated in terms of being some kind of a, of a virtue. But I don't know if from your own teaching experience or if you can speak more from philosophy of disability, if you have any thoughts on that. So I think Kant is a good example here, right? And of course, Kant doesn't think that because people with severe cognitive impairments, for example, are outside of his scope of morality, that we can treat them however we wish. But it's sort of a perverse response to that, right? We can't do that because we're harming ourselves. There seems to be some version of that going on. But even more contemporary scholars who are really widely praised like invoke ideas of trusteeship, for example. While someone can't reasonably reject a principle, like to talk about Scanlon, nonetheless, their trustees might be able to reasonably reject that principle. Thus, perhaps we owe them something. 
And I think that when we conceptualize ethics as in the ways that we've had, we run into some difficulties that I think Anita Silvers is the late Anita Silvers, unfortunately, is really got her finger on the pulse. When we talk about having to fight for your inclusion in the moral community, or even just when we talk about fighting to receive benefits or to receive accommodations or as a matter of being recognized within a principle of justice, there's she calls it self-defeating. If someone has to be able to identify themselves as disabled and identify themselves as worthy of consideration, that that in and of itself is really deeply problematic. And it's it's problematic, I think, for a variety of reasons. So let me try and articulate them here. The first is like, it's very reminiscent of English poor laws, where we had the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. So you've got uh, drunkards are a famous example of the unworthy poor. And then you've got people having to demonstrate one, that they're not like the unworthy poor, and two, that they are indeed worthy. So you've got this demeaning idea of having to grovel for something and, in fact, demonstrate one's need. Right? Like you often have to make a caricature of one's need in order to get the attention that is required to be deemed the worthy poor. So this is really difficult. But then once we successfully articulate that, You've got people who are thought to be a drain on the system, right? Like, again, especially in this American context, you've got like, why am I, who is independent, uh, required to provide my resources to help these individuals who have nothing to do with me, for example? And so we're creating by, by having to sort of demonstrate one's worth or desert, we're creating the I think a really strong possibility of having people with disabilities and others being viewed as burdensome. And then after that, like, like let's just think about right or wrong. We're thinking about affirmative action policies and the way that women and, and other minorities, perhaps, or minorities are, are perceived as a result of that. They're perceived to be favored by affirmative action policies. And this is generally regarded as being a strike against them and worthy of backlash of such policies. So that's not exactly answering the inclusion within the moral community question that you're, you were talking about. But I think it's related. And it, it's answering a question about what sorts of rights can people demand and what do we owe to people as a matter of justice. I think the question about how we articulate who is with resides within the moral community is a much more difficult one for being honest. I think that that's really tough to do. I, I can look at a lot of those attempts, like the Kantian one that you identify, and identify problematic features about that. But it, it's difficult to articulate that in a robust way, as you suggest is needed. The tension between ethics and politics is an interesting one. I'm going to use this part of the discussion to segue into uh, the issue of rights and disability, just with the prefatory comment that what I always find interesting in the relation between ethics and politics in a very general sense is that the ethic ethical focuses on the individual in a variety of ways. One, which we're talking about right now, is what count what counts as being a moral agent. So there are kind of two options. One, you can have a very high bar 
as with Cantas, you have to meet a certain degree of rationality to be able to deliberate on what it means to act uh, appropriately or right or wrongly in a, in a certain situation. And then you can set the bar really low and include more people or entities as being ethical in some sense, but then you have a very difficult time of creating or justifying criteria that might be able to be satisfactory in terms of what we think ought to count as right or wrong. That's kind of a, I guess, a different topic. Not, It's kind of related to what we're talking about, but I find that an interesting tension. But the other thing I think uh, which is more related to disability is that and I'm going to talk about Aristotle favorably here. Uh, I know it was a little bit disparaging about Aristotle to begin with, but he does make this really vague comment in the politics, if I recall correctly, that it's something to the effect of if everyone understood the principle, and the Greek term there is arche, uh, then laws wouldn't be necessary. And he doesn't really comment on that. But from my own interpretation of it is this is at the ethical level. If people were sufficient moral deliberators or ethical agents, then we wouldn't need rights and laws, or we would need them in lesser degree because people would be more able to deliberate about how to conduct themselves in relation to other people. And it seems like when you have the absence of that kind of capacity or capability, then you have to say, right, so these people have rights, these people, you know, you have to protect people because we're just not acting in an appropriate way that does recognize them as equals in some way. So that's a very kind of, that's a very intuitive point of view from from uh, my position that I've held for quite some time. But I just want to use that as kind of opening up the discussion of rights and disabilities, because I imagine it's a very vexed and controversial area. And even if you agree with a fellow philosopher about certain rights and disability, I imagine there's a lot of dis or ways in which you can disagree with each other about how you justify it or how you're conceiving of something in relation to those rights. So is there, can you say more about rights and disability in, in the political arena? I like your Aristotle example, because I want to even argue that that's sort of Nozick too here, right? I mean, a different end, but people give Nozick a bad rap because he doesn't think people should be coerced to provide sorts of services that might benefit other individuals. But he thinks that we should, morally, we should want to be providing these accommodations and services to people. We just shouldn't be compelled to do so. And I think that people wrongly look at Nozick in problematic ways as a result of that. So I think that that's an interesting point. In terms of political philosophy, the ways in which we conceptualize both our political philosophies as well as what people with disabilities are, what that experience involves, drastically changes the nature of rights that people with disabilities are owed. Right? Like, like Let's start with perhaps a luck egalitarian framework here. Luck egalitarians, of course, are people who think very generally we ought to compensate victims of bad brute luck, people who suffer uh, instances of disadvantage as a result of luck beyond their control, but that generally speaking, we ought not to compensate victims of bad option luck. If someone makes a calculated risk where there's a perceived benefit, but it doesn't go their way, well, tough, you made that risk or you made that gamble. And some people are, are critical of this, saying we're too harsh on victims of bad option luck. And I think that this is right. Christian Voigt makes this argument. But like, let's actually pause and think about what that means. If we think of disability solely in medical terms, then that would imply that the luck egalitarian would have to ultimately arrive at a different 
inclusion because you could have someone who has the same sort of impairment, which is what we're paying attention to if we're focusing on a medical model of disability, but they acquired that impairment in different ways. We can imagine someone who engages in risky behavior and acquires an impairment, and then we can imagine someone who has that same impairment as a result of a non-risky behavior or some sort of genetic cause. The luck egalitarian might, and perhaps this is uncharitable, might arrive at the conclusion that one of those engaged, or one of them is experiencing this impairment as a result of bad option luck. So they didn't have to do this risky leisure activity, but they chose to. And thus we owe them nothing or less than we might owe someone who is experiencing that impairment as a result of bad brute luck. But then if we conceptualize disability socially through a social model, that distinction might not have as much of a driving force because then we say, well, gosh, sort of no one took a calculated gamble to live where they're living. It's the built environment around them. It's bad brute luck that the built environment and the attitudes that have become prevalent in our societies are such that they arbitrarily, it would be argued disadvantage individuals with these particular impairments. Thus, we owe them something as a matter of justice. So it really changes what people with disabilities are owed, perhaps unsurprisingly, based upon our conception of justice or or based upon the way that we conceptualize disability. And so I favor a capabilities framework. For example, you mentioned Martha Nussbaum, who's done a good deal of work on this. And my first book was on this. My dissertation was on the capabilities approach and, and disability. And so I think what's interesting about this conception of justice is that what's most important for it, of course, is access to a substantive set of opportunities. There's valuable end states or functionings. And what's matter, what's important is that people have the capability or the opportunity to achieve those functionings if they so desire. No one's going to be forced to secure that functioning. But what matters as a point of justice is that everyone has a genuine, secure opportunity to achieve that functioning should they so wish. And this is called a capability. And I think that this is important because generally speaking, the reason why someone cannot secure that capability, if we conceptualize these in a robust enough way, is irrelevant for the question of justice. And this is particularly interesting to me because we we sort of ignore potential causes of this. These are really foundational entitlements that people have. And if someone doesn't have that, that's what matters. What matters is permitting them to secure that opportunity. And the cause of that insecurity is sort of irrelevant. So we can go back to the previous comment that we made about isolating someone, right? We're not creating a system where we rely upon isolating some from others, pointing out what's perceived to be deficiencies or sort of this English poor law kinds of reasoning. What matters is that someone doesn't have that opportunity. And so I think the way that we conceptualize justice implies a good deal for our political justice-based obligations, obviously. But this matters in terms of how we conceptualize disability as well. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com, your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? 
Hilary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high-tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.theletterh.com the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org. So I'm going to try and go down the rabbit hole of different conceptions of justice here, and you'll have to forgive me if it sounds a bit cumbersome, uh, not only because right. I'm not a political philosopher uh, and I'm a admitted Aristotelian, so my notions of justice come straight from this. Nicomachean ethics, but also because I've been engaged in the academic sphere for for quite some time. But usually, with conceptions of disability and rights, they'll the most of the discussion is I imagine around the issue of distributive justice or how goods within a society get uh, portioned out depending on who you are, where you are, or maybe we should disregard those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of questions that arise and entitlements and desserts and all these kinds of things. Is there another notion of justice, whether it's contributory justice, 
I don't know, reciprocal justice, restorative justice. I imagine there's a lot of different kinds of theories of justice around that you think does a really good job in helping us to understand what it means to be able to provide for capabilities and opportunities. I'll just make one comment because I'm familiar a little bit with Martha Nissbaum and uh, Marcia Sen on the capabilities approach. And also Paul Recur, who's central to my research, loves to talk about this idea of capabilities. And he often just talks about the rights to capabilities, but he doesn't really explain what he means by rights because you can have a very aggressive notion of rights where you can make claims upon others. And then you can just have this general notion of rights of that these are things that we have to recognize when constructing society or whatever it might be. Sorry, that's so there's a lot jumbled into that question, but I guess uh, just to recap, are there any other theories of justice which you think really help us understand the position of disability? And then would you speak of something like rights to capabilities? Would you go that far? So let's just answer the first question first, uh, the last question first, rather. The ones about rights to capabilities. I've thought a lot about human rights and I try and make a distinction between different kinds of capabilities. I think um, a failure to secure some capabilities. I think a failure to secure any capability has the potential to result in disadvantage. Okay, first things first. However, I think some capabilities, uh, sort of along with Joe Wolf and Abner Deshali, result in corrosive disadvantage. That is, and I use health as a paradigmatic example, an inability to have access proper health care or health measures results in a disadvantage that I find to be potentially corrosive. It adversely impacts the ability to secure other capabilities. Some capabilities, if left insecure, would result in disadvantage, but not necessarily corrosive disadvantage that reaches out into the other aspects of the capabilities. And so I think those disabilities or those capabilities that are at risk for resulting in corrosive disadvantage are rightly thought of as rights or, or maybe even as human rights. The other ones are things that are owed as a matter of justice, but not necessarily properly regarded as human rights. So that's the sort of like brief answer there. But are there other aspects of justice that help us here? I think for the most part, the other aspects of justice hurt if we're talking about promoting disability rights. And, and you mentioned contributive justice. I think the way that this is typically viewed is what could people with disabilities possibly contribute? What could they possibly reciprocate? And you can imagine someone with severe cognitive impairment or something like that, where you think the example, where you think your point's made in greater relief. But Eva Kate is doing really wonderful work on this, for example. I, I work in healthcare ethics and you know, a lot of the problem is we're very quick to engage in substitute decision making. We're very quick to sort of say, this individual is unable to make decisions on their own. Let's substitute in a surrogate here. And we're not quick because it's not fast to take the time to engage in shared decision making here, where we have to actually meet somewhere they're at, where we have to take time to understand how they're communicating their ideas and their values. It, does take a good deal of effort and time. But if done properly, shared decision-making is a remarkably powerful tool. And I mention this with reference to Kitay because she says that many people with disabilities, severe cognitive impairments or not, contribute a tremendous amount to our society. It's just that we're sort of failing to actually see what these contributions are. She talks about her daughter often. In fact, her most recent book is 
sort of centered around that. And she talks about the contributions that her daughter has made to her life and the lives of other people. And they might be thought to be atypical kinds of contributions, but she argues they're contributing nonetheless. And you and I contribute differently to the lives of people around us. And but I'm inclined to believe that people wouldn't question that we are contributing. But I think that's because we just more likely resemble what's perceived to be desirable contributions over others. And I think we need to recognize that maybe some people contribute more or less, but certainly everyone contributes. And certainly everyone contributes in different ways. And I think that contributive justice doesn't require a straight exchange of contributions. Uh, Typically, I think that these notions of justice, as I said, are used to justify the exclusion of people with disabilities. But thankfully, there are still not a lot, but many more people working on the philosophy of disability now that are prepared to extend these notions of justice in a far more inclusive way, much like Eva Kate has for quite some time, frankly. I say there are more people now. She's been at the forefront of this for an awfully long time at, at this point and been doing a wonderful job. I love the idea of corrosive vices on our capabilities. And uh, you mentioned health. That's a very important one, especially within the American context. I won't say any more on that. Uh, but also uh-huh. one of my favorites is the capability to imagine or the the cultivation of the imagination, because without that ability to imagine, you can't see oneself or one's family or one's community as improving in significant ways as one might normally would, because you can you can take all the possibilities that you come across in art and literature and philosophy and history and think about them critically and synergetically to to think about different possibilities for existence and being. And of course, the other one, and I think this is on Martha Nussbaum's list of capabilities that are essential, uh, it's the capacity or capability to work in some way. And this touches on the last portion of your comment is it's somewhat related to the idea of maybe we have too narrow of a conception of what it means to work and hence contribute to society, particularly in the American context. I'm beating this with a dead horse, but or I'm beating a dead horse as more. Um, we have a, and it's, it's in the West as well. We just think what it means to be a valuable member of society is not only to be working in some way, shape or form, but also in certain roles. So typically the doctor uh, the rocket scientist. I was going to say the lawyer, but then I remember that's not a good one. So um, uh, maybe the academic, maybe not. It's sometimes you get very uh, adverse reactions to what it means to be an academic. But it's certainly a, the notion that what is paid work, so you know, domestic work, is not considered worthy because it's not a paid work. Um, and of course, Elizabeth Anderson was pushing back on that in her book on value and I think value and economics, if I recall correctly. So, um, and and work is is really essential part of disability because a lot of disabled people need accommodations made in order to be able to work, or there might be some kind of psychological cognitive barriers for a disabled person to think that they can succeed in something they would like to, but just think, I don't have the self-confidence, or maybe they'll just turn me away because... I have a certain disability kind of thing. I know there are laws in place, of course, where um, that protects that, but I'm speaking hypothetically as it were. Can you can you say more about the context of work and disability and rights? And as I understand, if I remember correctly, because of the pandemic and the drive to provide accommodation for workers at home, 
being a disabled worker became an issue because of the potential ways in which an employer might have to provide accommodations at home for that person to be able to do their work, whereas at the office, as it were, or at the workplace, there were those accommodations. You and I met at a workshop on work. I think the pandemic revealed a lot, though, here, and not only what I spoke about at that workshop and what I'll speak about in a moment, but I think it also helped loosen our grip on traditional forms of employment as central to one's identity. And I think it helped expand the notion of what it meant to contribute to society. We've got this great resignation that's that's happening. And I think a lot of people, the pandemic and working from home caused them to say, this is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to contribute to society. And so I think it, in some ways, through this notion of work being essential to contributing to society, typical sort of work being essential to society, I think it really threw that on its head. And I think that that's an interesting first observation here. Yeah, but what, what was happening, or what at least has the potential to happen when we're working from home is employers have the ability then, I think, to attempt to make some sort of principled argument to say, yeah, 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 I have to offer accommodations in my building, the place where you labor or where you work, precisely because it's incompatible with your needs and manner X, Y, and Z. And it does not cause an undue hardship upon me to provide those things. But then, well, gosh, but you're working from home now. And perhaps even you've said you want to work from home because there's course, disparities with how people with disabilities can get to work and, and the additional costs and time and, and energy that's required with that. So you said you want to work from home, but this is your home. So I ought not to, help to be held accountable for making accommodations to your home. And perhaps innocently, after all, you live there. How can you live there day in and day out and then tell me that you need some sort of expensive adaptive device? in order to be able to do your work because you live there all of the time. Of course, I think that that's really short-sighted and fails to understand what the experience of disability involves. Like simply because someone can live at home doesn't mean that they can adequately conduct the work that they would do uh, in a different environment. At home as well, different accommodations are required for different sorts of activities. Living and playing, for example, can require wildly different accommodations or adaptations to one's environment than being able to conduct one's work. And so I argue that that it remains to be the employer's responsibility to provide those accommodations, irrespective of where those accommodations are being utilized or where they're taking place. And I don't do that because of what I'm about to say, but I think it's important to note Offices are at about a third of the capacity as they were prior to the pandemic. You can see people downsizing offices. You see that they recognize the cost savings that are afforded to them as a result of not having these huge spaces, as a result of having people being able to work from home. And that's not just something that they should be putting in their own pocket. Hurrah, I have to offer no accommodations to anyone at home. And I'm saving all of this on my bottom line. Wonderful for me. I think that quite obviously we can we could justify expenditures for someone to be included in the workplace at home as a matter of justice, but also as a result of 
additional costs and savings that are associated with that work from home. It sounds like it's entering the public sphere in a way you could see this becoming a, a hotly contested or debated topic. And I want to transition to your work or experience or expertise in uh, legal matters. And if you could talk about the cases you were involved in and what kind of testimony you have to offer. I mean, it's, it's very rare you get to hear about a philosopher being an expert witness. I, Paul Ricoeur was. Uh, he actually famously testified in uh, HIV blood contamination case, if I recall correctly. From the point of view of being a philosopher, what was that experience like? What did you have to offer as an expert witness? And as I understand, at least one of your experiences, there was a bit of uh, hotly contested it was a hotly contested political scene at the courtroom, as it were. So I don't know if you'd like to comment on that in any way, shape, or form. Maybe it's safe to say that I sort of started as a political philosopher, and I'm still one, but I've been branching out and working in applied ethics. And in particular, I've been focusing on medical aid and dying. And I was finishing up my PhD in Canada when the Carter decision to, to legalize medical aid and dying was going through, and there was uh, a bioethicist, Udo Schuchling who was an expert working on a document for the Canadian government that I found really fascinating and I got involved in. And so it's been important to me ever since then. Frankly, sort of on a personal note, ever since I watched my father experience cancer and, and the end of his life, this has been important to me. I've got a book coming out at the end of next year on the ethics of aid and dying. I've got a couple articles on it. So, so I've been working a lot on this. And I testified in three uh, places, New York, my home state, a couple of years ago, 2018. And then I testified in Delaware and Connecticut uh, most recently, the beginning of this year, 2022. And the work in Delaware was a lot more closely aligned with the individual who was proposing this legislation. We would talk, he would tell me what he was hearing from his constituents. He would tell me what he was hearing from people who were in opposition to this in his state and asking me what I thought about those arguments and whether they were good arguments, whether I had responses to them, because he knew that I was someone who valued disability rights. I try and do my best to improve the lives of people with disabilities. Yet I was someone who endorsed medical aid and dying, and that seems to be going against the disability rights organization's push. And so I can talk more about my actual arguments if you want to follow up, but I argue that it is permissible, you know, in, in spite of the arguments from a lot of disability rights organizations. But my experiences are really, really interesting because, of course, as philosophers, you and I are used to people disagreeing with us. In fact, we welcome it. We anticipate it. You know, this workshop that you and I were at, you know, we voluntarily subjected ourselves to people disagreeing with us for two hours sort of thing. And then we went out and had a meal with everyone and everything. like So we're used to that. The disagreement is, not to overuse a term, but like sort of merely academic on a lot of grounds. I don't want to say you're playing a game because it's much more serious than that, but you're making arguments, trying these things out, you're pushing one another. And part of the reason why I became interested in medical aid and dying and promoting disability rights is because it, I, I think it really, really matters on a very important level, but that's so obvious when you're sitting in a room where state legislatures are staring at you, or in some instances not. I mean, my experience in New York was very interesting because the people who were meant to be hearing expert testimony, my perception of it was had no desire to listen to it whatsoever. And perhaps that's because it was obscenely long. There's no way anyone could pay attention for that 
period of time. But people were on their phones. It was really sort of disheartening. People 15 feet in front of me were on their phones, not not looking. I think Connecticut did it really well. It was very brief. It was really wonderful. Actually, that was Delaware. Sorry, Connecticut happened all day. But yeah, when you're in that room, you simultaneously feel, gosh, I don't get this from philosophy. I don't get that I'm making a difference. I'm actually speaking to people that are in the best position possible to enact kinds of change that I'm advocating for. Wow, what an opportunity here. And it's overwhelming because you sort of never have those stakes when you're, when you're doing pure philosophy. So it was really scary. And then, of course, because I'm being asked to be there on behalf of other people, I feel like if I don't do a great job, I'm letting them down. Whereas normally philosophy is this really solitary thing where it's on me. Uh, so here I'm, I'm representing someone else. And, and that's really, really hard to weigh that. Well, then you're there. And of course, this is obviously politicized. In New York, there were two colors of shirts being handed out. Those four and those against had to wear these, these colored shirts. And, and when you're surrounded by people who are wearing the opposite color shirt than you, it really hits home that what you're doing is of vital importance and everyone else around you recognizes that too and you've got people who are opposing you not in the, like the philosophical way where someone sees a hole in your argument but in the way where they're thinking my life depends upon people genuinely feel that they are fighting a life or death sort of battle here and on both sides i suppose they are but the disability rights opposition the argument there is that you're licensing a, a policy that's going to permit such widespread abuse that people with disabilities could be killed either maliciously or more charitably in a misbegotten effort to spare them from what's perceived to be a life not worth living, right? And so, gosh, it's, it really makes you rethink your arguments in a way that having someone critically engage them in a small, dusty seminar room somewhere doesn't make you rethink them. It's humbling. It's terrifying, frankly, that you've got that possibility because uh, you don't have that as a philosopher often to, to enact that sort of change. Yeah, it's incredibly important and validating and humbling and terrifying <laughs> all at once. So I imagine with the controversy between the ideas of being disabled and being allowed to take one's own life, because it might be painful to be living with a certain kind of condition or impairment. This, for me, the knee-jerk reaction for me is it, it calls up problems of basically genocide and things that have happened historically where regimes like the Third Reich use disability or some kind of version of not meeting a definition of what it means to be human as a justification to, to allow people to die, to kill people actively, and so forth. So it must have been a very eye-opening situation as you've described. And I'm wondering, therefore, if as a result of this, you actually changed your position or modified your position at all, um, that it forced you to go through a period of critical reflection to really rethink what it was to, to argue things philosophically. So first off, just clarification, the policies that I was advocating for and the sort of principled way in which I advocate for this requires there to be a terminal condition present. So the mere presence of a disability, like in Luxembourg, you can have 
irremediable physical or psychological suffering. That's not the sorts of policies that we're talking about here. We're talking about someone with a verified critical diagnosis where they're going to be deceased in six months or less. So I think the the potential for these sort of like genocidal concerns is less uh, in those instances, but not omitted entirely, of course. But did I change my conclusion? No. Did it cause me great reflection? Absolutely. And it it forced me to rethink things beyond mere philosophical principled arguments. And I'll give you one very brief example of how I did that. I argue that people with disabilities, the, the arguments against aid and dying revolve around two possible sorts of concerns. There's this notion of person vulnerability. My, my person is actually vulnerable here. I might be killed. And then there's this notion of personhood vulnerability, where even if I'm not killed, by you identifying some lives as being more or less worth living, typically those that look like mine, the argument goes, you're suggesting that my you're, you're hitting sort of at a deeper level here. You're questioning my personhood. You're questioning the value of that. You're causing harm in a way revolving around the assessment of me. And so I thought, well, gosh, is this true? Like, are we devaluing people with disabilities if we do this? And of course, that's difficult to do, difficult to assess, because if people have offensive attitudes, you walk up to a racist and say, hi, are you racist? Most of them are, while not terribly intelligent, are intelligent enough to not just tell someone that they're racist. And I think that someone's not going to say, oh, yeah, I think people with disabilities are, are terrible. And, you know, this legislation has sort of proven this. But I looked at something called disability-associated health expenditure. How much of healthcare spending goes to disability-associated health expenditures? And interestingly, in every state where aid and dying was legal, the health expenditure was at or greater than national disability-associated health expenditures. And indeed, that was growing at a rate much faster than states without aid and dying. And so I thought, well, gosh, if it is true that we're devaluing people with disabilities in states where we permit this to be replaced, clearly that could manifest itself in the sorts of policies and expenses that we, that we enact for people with disabilities. And so it really gave me pause and said, are my principled arguments without any sort of basis in reality? And I found that they weren't, that it appears as if the principled arguments are sound and that the evidence is, is on my side with reference to that. We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And the first one is, is there any one philosophy or philosopher that has been central to the way you have lived your life and continue to do so? I'm assuming no one wants to list one person. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to list two. And the first is perhaps like obvious for people who have their PhD, but my former supervisor, Jerome Bickenbach, has been central in the way that I've lived my life, both because he's dedicated his career to trying to advance the rights of people with disabilities. And that's something that, frankly, he exposed me to, and that has shaped my life in a very obvious way. I, I've been doing this for 10 years now, and I don't want to stop doing this. And that is as a result of having met him. But he's also shaped my life in a different way. He was such a gregarious individual who was kind and charitable. And I'm, I think, naturally not any of those things. And I, I try and 
be more like him academically, but I try and be more like him personally as well. And then the second person for the exact same reasons is Martha Nussbaum. I had the good fortune of attending a summer school with her while I was doing my PhD. And she was so generous and charitable and thoughtful. You can imagine how intimidating hanging out with someone like that might be when your little paper is critical of her work. But she was so incredible during that time. And that really taught me different ways in which I want to be kind and thoughtful to people. But I think her capabilities approach, which she works on so much, so it's not all that she does, but her capabilities approach has drastically influenced how I view basically everything philosophically. And it's a good litmus test for me to see whether what I'm advocating for or against fits within that broader paradigm. And if there are any philosophy students out there listening to, podcast, to this podcast, then I highly recommend Martha Nussbaum's Fragility of Goodness. It's a wonderful defense of Aristotle. I'm a bit critical of how she portrays Plato, but the scholarship is very thorough. But I think she gives Plato a bad rap. But um, her chapter on saving appearances in Aristotle was absolutely eye-opening for me. And it was wonderful to read, uh, to see someone in defense of, of ancient Greek philosophy. What a lot of philosophers say just don't have time for the history of philosophy. So wonderful to hear. The last question, Chris, is do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Gosh, I mean, that's not something that I'm good at, but you've inspired me here with your mention of fragility of goodness. So I won't offer parting words of wisdom insofar as they're bombs. I think when she's talking about living well and she's talking about tragedy and fragility of goodness, it's really Beautiful. As someone who, myself, who gets stressed out quite easily, who's worried about lots of things, whether they're real or imagined. She says, you know, like tragedy only happens when you're trying to live well or something like that. And she says this in an interview after she's written Fragility of Goodness as well. In order to live well, you've got to care about things enough to open up yourself to the possibility of tragedy happening. And I think that that's remarkable advice. And maybe it's privileged. Maybe only those in a privileged position can say that. I think that that's remarkable advice that I need to take more seriously, that I think others should too. Chris, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy, and we look forward to seeing more of your work in political philosophy, philosophy of disability, and applied ethics in the future. Thank you so much, Todd. If you would like to know more about the research and publications of Chris, please visit the podcast blurb for social media links and websites. You can always find information on Chris at the Utica University website. If you found this discussion insightful and informative, please share the podcast link. We could use more philosophical discussion in our lives. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and The Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the philosophytoyou.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.